Welcome to the Grow Your Practice podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Chad Madden, owner of Madden Physical Therapy and Breakthrough. Join me each week as we dive into the best practices, systems, principles, tips, and tricks to help you grow your private practice. Hey, everybody. Chad Madden here with the Grow Your Practice podcast. And today I'm here with a very special guest, Dr. Jeff Langmaid. Dr. Jeff is uh, founder of the Evidence-Based Chiropractor. Also, uh, you might know him from the Smart Chiropractor with his partner, uh, Dr. Jason Deich, which we'll talk about here in a second. But uh, I've gone through a ton of your writing here. Dr. Jeff, absolutely amazing. You're talking about marketing, you're talking about content, et cetera. But before we get into that, welcome to the show. And can you fill in any gaps, please, in your, your intro? Uh, just thank you so much for having me on. It's always a pleasure when I see a uh, email come through and an invitation to come on and chat. And I know that you have built just a fantastic audience. So I'm happy to be an open book, dive into anything that you would like to. I know we're going to talk probably a little bit of research, a little bit of marketing, a little bit of what's going on in the market and hopefully help everybody that's listening and tuning in. If they can take away one tangible action step, one new thought, then I will be happy. But I think you did a, a great job uh, on the intro. If there's anything that you missed, I would say I also am involved in an imaging company called AOMZ Spinal Diagnostics, and I am involved in a staffing and recruiting firm called Cairo Matchmakers. So I'm pretty busy day in and day out, but it's all within and around the healthcare space where, where I think both of us live and passionate about. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Jeff. Uh, first thing I want to talk about is how did you become a chiropractor? How did you get into the industry, um, school? What was early career look, looking like for you? That's a great question. And my journey is probably not uncommon to many people in the healthcare space, regardless of what your credentials are. So, and what I mean by that is personal experience. So early on, I knew this is going to go super geeky territory here, but in fifth grade, I made a presentation on endoscopic knee surgery. And I was like, I'm going to become a endoscopic knee surgeon. And that was like what I wanted to do. Uh, I pretty much wanted to be a, a garbage man until that time. And then all of a sudden how I decided that that's what I wanted to be. And when I was in college, I was like, man, do I really want to stare down like a, a you know six millimeter tube my whole life? And not that there's anything wrong with that, but I was unsure. And at that time, my father suffered a, a low back injury, went to see a chiropractor and got, got well. And I went home for Christmas break and, and he's my, he was like, you got to meet this guy and meet the chiropractor. So I went and met the chiropractor. Didn't know too much about it at the time, but the chiropractor I met was the uh, alumni president for Palmer College of Chiropractic. So literally within five minutes, he picks up the phone, calls them and is like, you got to send this guy some information. Um, and that's what sort of started that journey. The more that I learned about the profession, the more it resonated with the ideas I already held as health and wellness, but didn't have a name to put to. And that's what sort of, sort of started that journey for me. Now, come to find out later on, and I did not know this at the time, but my great-grandfather had been a chiropractor in the 1920s. So chiropractic was founded 1895. And in the 1920s, super early on, people being jailed, totally wild, crazy time. And my great-grandfather happened to have been a, a chiropractor and he passed not too long after I was born. So there, there wasn't too much overlap there, but there was a, a lineage and a history that was discovered, which was pretty cool as time went on. But that's really where... I got started, I went to school at uh, University of Tampa for undergraduate, went to Palmer College of Chiropractic in Florida for chiropractic school. And I, I know we're, we're going to go into some of that early career, but I've practiced just about every way you can practice. I was an associate doctor. I own my own practice. I worked within multiple multidisciplinary traditional ortho practices. There's a lot that we can dive into there, but that's how I, that's how I originally got started. That's great. So the thing that jumped out, and you mentioned owning your own practice, was that before or after the, the two large multidisciplinary experiences you had? Before. So when I, when I originally came out of school, I practiced as an associate with that doctor who called the school to help my dad. So you know, kind of coming full circle on, on that piece of it, he was a mountaineer and he was going to climb Mount Everest. He was going to be the first Rhode Islander, which is where I grew up, to summit Everest. And the summit climbing season, or excuse me, the Everest climbing season is about March to May. I graduated in December. 
So he said, why don't you come work with me for a few months? Then you can take over the practice. He had been in practice about 20 years, saw about 125 patient visits a week, solo practice. So I took it over. And then the climb, when he came back, I stayed another few months. That's when I opened up my own practice in Providence, Rhode Island. And then I joined the orthopedic groups once I came back down here to Tampa, Florida. That's great. So what, was there any learning that really jumped out for you in terms of expectations walking into that multi, those multidisciplinary clinics, the, the companies, and if you can share the details for that, that would be great. And then what you learned going through that process that really influenced what you're doing today. Yeah, everything I do today, I think, stems from that. If I trace it back to when I had a private practice in Providence, it was cash-based practice, boutique, small 600 square foot space downtown. And this is in the early 2000s. So was, you know, I kind of had this envisionment of like, now I think people would think of it like a super high-end boutique or sneaker store, right? People charge like $500 for like a pair of sneakers. And they're in these small, super well-designed spaces. And like, hair salons. For some reason, I had like this, not that there was going to be any uh, hair being done or shoes being sold, but I had this visionment of a small cash-based boutique, high stylized practice. And that's, and, and it did come to fruition. And I made about every possible mistake you can make as a business owner and in marketing. So everything is from scar tissue, let's put it that way. But to answer your question specifically about the orthopedic groups, there, it is an, it's a, an interesting story, and, I, and I've seen more and more conservative care providers going into these larger multidisciplinary groups and in unique ways. So uh, I'm happy to sort of explore that process a little bit. So when I came back down to Tampa, Florida, my wife is a physical therapist, pediatric physical therapist. So she's always been involved in sort of hospital-based care and hospital-based systems. But as a chiropractor, you're, you're sort of on the outside looking in, especially then. And when I came down to Florida, I noticed that this group, Florida Orthopedic Institute, and there's still in existence today here in Tampa Bay, one of the most popular groups and most successful groups, they had a single chiropractor on their team. And I was like, man, they have like 50 surgeons. They probably have 20, 25 uh, PTs. They have some OTs. They have all of these services. And then they have one chiropractor. There's something interesting there. And I had just a little bit of an itch to practice in that setting, not really knowing what it entailed at the time. And I, so what I did was I shadowed the doc, the chiropractor, David Reyna, who was practicing within that group. I shadowed him for a number of weeks. And at the time I was doing some coverage work to make ends meet when I moved back to Florida, I didn't know exactly where I was going to land. So I shadowed him for a few weeks. And then I had the bright idea of, okay, well, you know, as I asked Dr. Reyna about the practice, it was pretty clear early on that he was not going to be a decision maker and being able to hire me. He was an employed physician within the group. But I got the name of the chief operating officer, and that's what started the journey. So I reached out to the COO of the company, and knock on wood, somehow I, I positioned myself to get the meeting with him, and I created a complete pitch deck. So my tip there would be, if you're looking to get into a group, you need to identify who the decision maker is, because that was a key aspect of what propelled. I could have stayed shadowing Dr. Reyna forever and probably never received the opportunity to join the group, but I leveraged my relationship with him to understand who the key decision makers were. Then I went in prepared, and in a large orthopedic group, Patient care is important, but these are business organizations. So understanding that I was going to go in and had crafted a, I'm going to say in hindsight, a pretty good pitch uh, to help them understand the opportunity they were leaving on the table by not having somebody like me was a great position for me to be able to showcase the opportunity of adding me to the team. Now, when it comes full circle, that individual at the time, the COO, went back to Dr. Reyna and said, hey, we ever heard of this guy? And of course, that's where the shadowing came in key, right? Because now Dr. Reyna said, yeah, Jeff's been here for a couple of weeks. Great guy. That's what sort of propelled the process forward. So that was very, very early on. That was probably, I want to say, 2010, 10, you know, 10, 12 years ago. And I estimate that I was one of maybe 25 chiropractors practicing in an orthopedic group in history at that point in time. Now it's a little bit more common, but that's how the process started. Great. Thank you for that, Chuck. When did the marketing bug hit you? <laughs> and, and how did you make the transition from clinical chiropractor or associate chiropractor over to marketing? So some of that, the seeds of that probably occurred when uh, I struggled in my own practice, owning my own practice and trying to get that boutique practice up and going. 
I just encountered so many issues and I've always been a little bit interested in marketing. I played music and bands and things like that. So promotion kind of goes hand in hand with that. I've always liked online business in a very general sense, but not without any particular direction at that point in time. But when I joined the orthopedic group, one of the things that I began was the brand of the evidence-based chiropractor. And now in hindsight, it's a divisive name. Like you could, people either love it or hate it. But at that time, I think I had like 10 names on a sheet of paper. I just happened to choose that one. It wasn't any sort of statement of fact. It just was like, oh, this seems like it's okay. And it's available. <laughs> the most important thing. So I started the evidence-based chiropractor because I saw so many healthcare providers didn't have great referral networks and specifically within the chiropractic realm. So what really started that was this, is when I joined that orthopedic group, I was, okay, I got to build my practice. And I joined the group. I show up on day one and my book is empty. And I'm like, oh gosh, like these guys have infinite patients. How come, you know, what's going on here? So it was going to be a challenge, I realized, to build my practice within their ecosystem. So I started developing marketing materials, flyers, handouts, et cetera, and started doing events. And very quickly, I got a call from the director of marketing, like, hey there, cowboy, you can't just like use our logo and make up all your own stuff and like go for it. And I'm like, oh gosh, I didn't really consider that. But I thought to myself, okay, well, well, how the heck am I supposed to build a practice within this practice if I can't go externally? That's what made me think, well, I got to reach out to these other employed physicians, the PTs, the OTs. I got to reach out to my colleagues in this organization and build referral relationships. So I started to do that and it worked. And then I took that externally to some of the primary care physicians in the community and it started to get a little bit of traction. And that's when the light went off in my mind. I said, man, there are so many healthcare providers, specifically chiropractors, that struggle to really build great long-term referral relationships, which is marketing ultimately. And that's what was the impetus early on for the evidence-based chiropractor. And that concept was all around, still is today. The core of it is about building referral relationships by finding who has your ideal patients in their practice. I don't care what their credentials are or what the letters are after their name, but who has your ideal patients in their practice? Because if you start getting out there, having conversations, showcasing, and we have step-by-step -step process and everything like that, but the gist of it is, is the more that you can build that relationship, when your ideal patients are in your practice, your practice is more profitable and more fun. And you are serving the patient at the highest level because those are the people you're most jazzed about. And I don't care what your focus is, specialty, whether it's pediatrics, geriatrics, sports, uh, you know, whoever it might be, pregnancy-related care, there are complementary providers in your community that have your ideal patients in their practice literally right now. Concierge, doctors, midwives, doulas, or, you know, orthos, you name it. You just got to start to refine that, build a target list, get out there and start that process. So that was really where the marketing took hold. Now, over time, I always had the interest beyond that. And that's really where the smart chiropractor got more into social email, really the mechanics of the tactical and strategic aspects of marketing at scale. But it all started practicing in the orthopedic group and struggling to fill my own schedule. That's great. Love that story. The... So there are a couple of things that you alluded to there, and uh, I just want to see, you know, working with the number of chiropractors that you work with, literally hundreds of practices, um, if, if there's a similar thread there. So most clinicians, whether we're chiropractors, physical therapists, um, podiatrists, naturopathic doctors, et cetera, we all kind of carry this idea of marketing of we're going to provide high quality of care for evidence-based practice right? And grow by word of mouth referral. And that there's all, it's almost taboo if we advertise ourselves, um, if we meet another potential referral source or anything along those lines. And usually we reinforce the walls around uh, marketing prevention by saying something like telling ourselves the story of my business is different. When you're working with a practice owner and you're helping them overcome that, and they know that they need to build marketing systems, they know that they need to start making, creating content and building a referral network. How do you help them overcome that, that challenge? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things that are in, important and I agree with everything you said. One is our core philosophy of teach and invite consistently. It's not about selling. If you show up and you teach, you educate, entertain, engage, 
you invite, that's the call to action, give us a call, hop on the schedule, join the webinar, whatever it might be. And you do that consistently. And last word's the hardest part, of course, consistently. If you teach and invite consistently, then you're going to see success. So you, people equate marketing quite often, healthcare providers specifically, to paid advertising, to discount advertising. And paid advertising is a portion of marketing, but it should be less than 20%. Your marketing can lead with education. That's where teach and invite consistently comes about. And we really preach that and we live it through our own brand and what we do, but also on behalf of, of, our, of our clients and the docs that we work with. The other important item, in my opinion, to, to keep in mind is the other side of the coin, and that's what I call the, uh, you know, the journey of professional indifference. And, and when I'm speaking on stage, I have a slide that goes through this, but I just, I want to call any provider. I'm gonna, I'll be a little stark here and say, you know, I know so many providers have exactly what you described, and I'm going to tell you uh, and, and hopefully reach them and say, you got to get over it. And, and here's why is because every day in your community right now, there are people undergoing unnecessary surgeries, taking unnecessary medications and doing unnecessary interventions that affect them and their families for the rest of their lives. And how does that play out? I'll give you a very simple story. This is the example I use every time. Why? Because it's happening in my town today. It's happening in your town today. And it's happening in the town of everybody that is listening. Patient notices that they have some light radiculopathy a little bit of numbness and tingling and pain down their arm. They go to see their primary care physician. There's exceptions to this rule, but this is that those are the exceptions. So what I'm describing is the rule, and I think everybody will resonate with it. Patient has a little bit of radiculopathy. They go into the primary care doctor. The primary care doctor does a quick examination, gives some medication. Well, there's a structural issue. So the medication does not work, aka the patient becomes sensitized to it very quickly because they chances are they have a disc that's encroaching in the IVF and causing some compression or irritation. Uh, so the medication, quote unquote, doesn't work, whether that be seven days, 30 days, because there's a mechanical issue. And they're going through the same lifestyle habits because they haven't changed anything, right? So they're just going back to work doing the same thing. They become sensitized. They go back. Primary care says, well, let's get an MRI. The MRI, lo and behold, shockingly, shows that a disc might be bulged or herniated and encroaching in the IVF. Well, a good physical exam would have picked that up to begin with, but this is the journey of professional indifference. Primary care at that point says, I, 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 I knew it. We have a disc issue. You know what you need to go is you need some injections. You need to go to the pain management doctor. Patient goes to the pain management doctor, receives an epidural steroid injection. Epidural steroid injection loads the area. You could stick it in your toe, your butt, your wherever you want. You're going to feel better for a short amount of time, but by and large, they've shown to be largely wholly ineffective other than acute inflammation and acute pain in an area. Patient goes back to doing the same thing they've done their whole life because they think the doctor's taking care of it. Guess what? The ESI wears off. They received three ESIs that first year. Well, you can't get any more epidural steroid injections while that's deteriorating the cartilage in the area that's inflamed and injured. Well, now it's off to the surgeon to potentially take care of that issue. And I think that that is a travesty. And we know that that happens 24 million ESIs each and every year, over 1 million elective spine surgeries each and every year. And there's a time and a place for each of those. But there's no question that that permanently alters the biomechanics. It permanently alters life. And I'm describing what I'm going to say in some cases is the best case scenario, the worst case, they get addicted to opioids and then we're dealing with that, which all of the gains on the opioid epidemic that took place between 2014 and 2017 are completely wiped out. It is by far worse than it's ever been because of the last year and a half. And it's not going to let up anytime soon. So I believe as PTs, as OTs, as DCs, we are an integral part of getting in as early as possible. In some states, hopefully we're getting in as the first point of contact where a patient comes in and can receive movement-based care, lifestyle effects. They can take health into their own hands, reduce inflammation, change habits, alter lifestyle, which has been just about the only thing that's actually going to make a material difference long-term in so many of these cases. So tying that into marketing, why is marketing important? If you care about the health of people in your community, you need to get out there and tell your story. You have to be, what I say is proactively answering the questions people have about their health because the more that you do that, the more you build trust and rapport, and the more that you can help people in your community avoid 
the fate that so many have fallen into over the last 20 years and will continue. And I want to be clear, that's not a slog on orthopedics. That's not a slog on MDs or DOs. That's not a slog on primary care physicians. It's just, we all know it to be true. I'm just calling it what it is. And I think all of us as conservative healthcare providers need to step up and lean in so that we're leading that conversation. We're not waiting for just whatever happens to come our way. Yeah, completely agree with you there, Dr. Jeff. I know every single, whether we have a practice act or code of ethics or standards of conduct in any clinician, it, it always leads with, we have a responsibility to the patient first. And if we can help that patient for a couple hundred dollars, a couple thousand dollars with conservative care, avoid unnecessary medications, injections, and surgery, that's really our responsibility. Love what you said there. Very articulate. I've been talking about it for years, but you put it in a nice package there. I appreciate that. The, um, you, you talked about very briefly um, education, which I agree as well. If we're talking about nurturing or indoctrination, long-term establishing the clinician establishing themselves as the authority celebrity expert, nothing beats education. You also talked about buying advertising as well and putting out, at least in your articles, uh, a, a lot of social content, a lot of, whether it's books, reports, pamphlets, brochures, et cetera. If I'm a clinician, I have no idea how to market. I know I need to market. Where do I start? <laughs> Oof, that's a tough one. <laughs> so I would always start with the, the hottest audience, which are the people that you have already seen. So what I mean by that is I would look towards your current patient database. So if you were going to start, for instance, and you just say with email marketing, you say, well, I think email is important, but you know, do I put a lead capture on my web? This seems complicated already. Mm -hmm. What I would say is reach out to your existing or past patient database. Let them know you're around, showcase, teach and invite. You don't have to say, hey, come in to see me tomorrow. That's actually the worst type of email you can send. But what you can send is educational content. That might be, for example, a case study of something that you saw in practice lately. Uh, I love thinking about content, the research, and putting it into the context so people can understand. So I said radiculopathy earlier, but if I was writing an email or a social post around that, I'd say, is my arm pain coming from my neck? right? That's patient language where it's like, if anybody has arm pain that is, that's receiving that message, you just got their interest, right? And now you can describe and go into detail. Well, here's what might be happening. If you notice this, this, or this, and you can break it down and you could even offer, here's some stretches and exercises. Now, if that doesn't, you know, if you don't find relief within X days, what, however you want to phrase it, give us a call. And that's the invitation, right? But you lead with the teaching, and showcasing something of value. And then that affords you the opportunity for the invitation. So to answer your question, I guess, very clearly on where to start is, I think you have to start by first shifting your mindset that marketing is a bad thing or about sales to marketing is about teaching, educating, and connecting and stepping up to be that leader, to be that celebrity, to be that influencer. Because if you're not, who is? And if you look out there in your community or online and you're like, I don't like what that guy or gal is doing, well, it's your time to step up, right? So I, shifting that mindset first to a teach and invite mentality, I think is the number one thing. Because if you are fighting an uphill battle, thinking that marketing is sales, thinking that marketing is paid advertising, thinking that marketing is, I have to be cheesy and sleazy and I have to do this, you're never gonna last on the consistency part, right? And teach and invite consistently is the most important thing. So number one is, is mindset. There's a lot to explore there, but in a nutshell, that's how I would view it. The second thing that I would do if I was just getting started, and this, is, this will be a little bit jarring for many out there, but I would start with video. Why? Because it's hard, number one, and you just got to get over it. I'll, say, I'll talk about that in a second. Number two is because it's the most powerful medium available. It's the deepest way that you can most quickly build a connection. And many of us aren't great writers and many of us, you know, aren't great salespeople. But I think as providers, as clinicians, we all have a certain level of communication skills with the patient. So looking at a camera is a lot different than sitting one-on-one -on -one with the patient. I totally get it. I always make the joke and I say, unless you're Ryan Seacrest, you didn't come out of the womb ready to be on camera. So everybody thinks they sound weird. Everybody thinks they look weird. Everybody's afraid to get zero views, but 
It's a skill and you just got to push through. And the sooner you do those first five to 10 videos, the sooner you'll get on the other side of that. And then you're going to be comfortable and you're off to the races. So don't let technology be a hindrance is one tip I would say. You don't have to have the best camera, the best microphone. Uh, we could go into some details there, but you don't have to, don't let technology be a hindrance and don't let inexperience be a hindrance. I think as a chiropractor, I think of my first adjustment probably wasn't that great, <laughs> but I hope my 10th, 100th and 1000th were a lot better, right? And I think as, as a physical therapist, the first you know case that you had to manage and go through from completion to end, you're, you're probably doing a lot better now than then in terms of your confidence level, your ability. And being on video is just a skill like anything that you've already learned takes a little bit of repetition, takes a little bit of practice. But if you can get over that hump, it's going to be the most powerful communication tool because you could use video on any platform. Now you become platform agnostic. You can use video on TikTok, YouTube, in emails, on your website, on Facebook, on Instagram. It gives you the widest array where you can use that content. And hey, if you want to take it to the next level, you could take that video, transcribe it, and now you have blog and email content, which makes things so much easier from a creative standpoint. So place that I would start is I, I would, as they say, you know, what do they say, eat the frog in the morning or whatever it might be. I would start with video, even though it might be considered to be the hardest thing, it's going to be the best thing for you long-term if you're committed to teaching and inviting consistently. I agree with you more. Uh, it's exactly what I did. 2010, just a quick personal share. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Jeff. So we had uh, I have a private practice. We have six locations now. At the time, we had two. We just opened our second location, and we really tanked. We, I think, uh, in one quarter, I lost nearly a hundred thousand dollars. Income minus expense, revenue minus cost, brutal. So I was reinvigorated. A friend invited me to this Jeffrey Gittimer uh, seminar, who is uh, basically a content and uh, sales marketing coach who's still around. And uh, so bought all his books, read through everything. I was like, wow, like Facebook's coming, YouTube's coming. Got myself a, a flip camera at Costco. I think it was $99. They're so ridiculous. It was a, literally a, a video camera with a large red button and a USB. I had two of them. <laughs> oh, that's great. Great. I, I actually, I still found, I was cleaning out my old office and I, I, I found a couple of them as well. So uh, yeah, we'll have to trade. Uh, but they're now defunct. And what I would do is uh, I would carry around in my pocket just a sheet of notebook paper. And as patients would ask a question, I would just write the question down. Every Friday, I had a 30-minute time slot, maybe an hour time slot. And I would just, I would record answers to those questions. And I was doing nothing more than answering basic questions. A couple of them went viral. I just checked uh, here recently. I don't pay too much attention to it. But we have 22 million views on a YouTube channel from that I post and stuff. Back in 2010 and 2011, the majority of the content is back from them. And you're exactly right. It took me, I, I'm a slow learner, and you can tell by me fumbling through the introduction here eight times before we got it right. Yeah, it, it probably took me two dozen takes, videos, before I, I really felt comfortable and I felt like I was talking to a friend when I was looking into the camera, but we, we can all learn that same skill set. So love what you said there. I think the encouragement is great. And uh I wouldn't worry about ripping off the Band-Aid and sending everybody straight to video because you're <laughs> exactly right. The, the, the big, one of the big things that I see in uh, medical advertising, healthcare advertising right now is the voucher offer. And what we've talked about internally and had this conversation with other guests as well is the amount of time that a potential patient spends with us consuming our content results in a significantly better patient long-term. We, we can build a lifelong relationship for example, we host one-hour webinars or now one-hour in-house lectures or workshops. And I know if somebody shows up to that, that there's a very good chance they're going to become a lifelong patient. That goes away when I'm offering an eval and a laser treatment for $19. Can you talk about your experience with that? And because it, I, I see it everywhere. Um, you also had some compliance, very good compliance guidance that I think every clinician should read before they hop, hop in bed with the voucher offer. Um, but can you talk through that, what you're seeing in the marketplace and how you help owners overcome that? The biggest thing you touched on it is deep dis I'm just against deep discount offers. I just don't think they're effective and I don't believe they are good for brand and positioning. And it's, I compare it to sugar. 
I, I like having cookies, but, uh, but you're going to crash. Right? You, you can't live on them. All right. So when I talk about deep discount advertising or voucher offers, if you need to keep your doors open next week, do what you need to do. So I like to ensure that that's heard out there, right? There is a time and a place. If you are in desperation mode, stay open so you can see people and do what you need to do. Now, thankfully for 99.5, I want to say percent, that's not you right now. And if you're offering deep discount offers via online advertising, you're churning and burning. You are going to hurt you're trading, you're, you're day trading, you're going to get that sugar rush, but you are only, you just wait for the crash. And here's what I, what I mean by that is there's a couple of different aspects to it. Number one is that paid advertising always costs more for less. Of course, every paid advertising company is going to position and finagle to hopefully try to get you the best return on investment. But uh, the, the day that ads start costing less <laughs> is going to be the, you know, that'll, that'll be a new day for me. So typically everything costs more over time for less results. So there's diminishing return. So you have to go in with that understanding. The second aspect is cold traffic. A lot of times deep discount advertising is not run to warm traffic. These are not retargeted ads quite often. They're, they're cold traffic ads. Cold traffic are people who don't know who you are at all. You might just be running the ad based upon demographics. They're this interest, this age within this circle of practice. It's about the loosest phenomenon you can possibly uh, judge somebody on. And you're going to pay more every time running ads to cold traffic rather than retargeted ads to warm traffic. Warm traffic would be perhaps somebody who has engaged with your Facebook page. Maybe they're a follower of one of your social channels. They're on your email list. They visited your website. You can track that very easily through every ad platform. And then you whether we say retarget, meaning you show an ad to somebody who has engaged or shown interest with who you are and what you do. And that's called a warm audience. That warm audience is always going to be less expensive from a conversion perspective. Why? Because as you alluded to, Chad, they already know who you are a little bit. You built some of that relationship. They've consumed something, whether they visited your website, engaged with a social post, followed a page, you name it. And that is relationship-based as opposed to just throwing the fish and pull out and seeing what comes in. So cold traffic is always going to underperform relative to warm traffic. Cold traffic is always going to cost more over time for less result. Compared to warm traffic, you can stay pretty steady or you can even optimize over time by segmenting that list and really fine tuning it. So these are polar opposites that most clinicians think of as just one thing, right? Paid advertising. And, and many think of that as marketing, right? And it's like marketing's this whole thing, paid advertising, a small slice of it. And then within that, there are all these individual slices. Now, the other thing about cold traffic that's important to remember is Quite often, these are not your ideal patients. As my partner, Jason, would say, they're deal shoppers. And what do deal shoppers do? They shop for deals. So when they're taking advantage of that wondrous $29, only four left you know, offer and everything in the kitchen sink, you're going to notice that there's a small percentage that actually stick around or stay and pay and refer it's going to be dramatically less. And I'm not telling anything, anybody that they don't know. If you have somebody who's referred in from a happy client, referred in from another healthcare professional, that's a different patient than somebody who walks in hoping to take advantage of your $19 for a free pillow, complete examination, x-rays, traction unit, and everything else. They're going to continue to shop for deals. And the compounding thing of all of this is the cold traffic, that person that comes in for that deal, ironically, providers are selling the most in that interaction. They're like, I got to convert and sell this person and I'm watching the number. And it's like the irony of so many healthcare providers that are evidence-based that really pride themselves on communication, then running deep discount advertising <laughs> and then having a problem with marketing, quote unquote, because they're associating it with the discount. It's crazy pants and it's crazy land. And it goes on to the tune of, you know, tens of thousands of providers each and every day. So the difference in my problem, I would say with vouchers and, and deep discount advertising is number one, 
it's just less effective. Like if you want to do that because you need to keep your doors open, that's one thing. Secondly, if you if you're doing everything else right, content marketing, retargeting marketing, and then you want to sprinkle on some cold advertising, great. But it should be the last place you start, not the first place you start. You should start with all of the free options, all of the retargeted options, all of the warm options, and then sprinkle on the sugar. That's when you can sprinkle on the paid advertising, the cold traffic. But the bizarro world of so many healthcare providers being like, I need to start marketing. The first thing I'll do is start advertising to cold traffic and thinking that that's the way that's going to get them successful. And of course, there are exceptions. And sugar does give you that rush. Quite often, you throw out a paid ad and a deep discount. If you want to just get somebody with a heartbeat and a warm body walking through your door, that will probably do it. But I'm going to go out on a wild and crazy limb and say, for many people listening, a warm body with a heartbeat is not their idea of their ideal client and patient walking in that front door. So that's really, you know, what I would dive into. And then as you alluded to, there's all of those compliance issues as well. So, you know, depending upon the state and the country that you practice in, sometimes even in the municipality, how you are going about deep discount advertising, you can very easily slide into the potential for dual fee schedules. You can very easily slide into copy that could get you in trouble with a with a state and local board. It's a very slippery slope. Now, can you do that right and you be successful with it? Yes. But I'll tell you, when you show up and teach and invite consistently, many times a lot of those worries go by the wayside. They're just a non-factor that become a major factor when you're trying to drive down price. And as Seth Godin would say, you know, the problem with the race to the bottom is you might win. So, you know, as you continue to decrease your price and offer more services for that price, this is where other people see that. And now your front desk is dealing with why does this person pay this or can I use this? And it's just, it's wild, it's bizarre. And I don't understand why so many clinicians want to start with that instead of potentially not do it at all or finish with it. So that's my take. And I'm happy to dive deeper, but that's my take on deep discounts. You, you crushed it. What I heard you talk about is really the Groupon phenomenon, right? Where it's, there's somebody looking for, they're, they're shopping, they're kicking tires. They're going to everybody that has a voucher offer, a coupon offer. And that's been my experience as well. Uh, completely agree there. And we didn't use the same exact words, but I, I believe I just did a podcast episode on this where I talked about Eugene Schwartz, the five levels of awareness from his, the 1967 book, uh, Breakthrough Advertising. He talks about, you know, if you're looking at an awareness scale, you want to deal with people who know, like, and trust you first, and then you work your way through. And then, like you said, sprinkle a little sugar on once you've mastered all the, all the other levels of awareness. That's great. So leads are good, but relationships matter. I pulled that quote from uh, an article you wrote, or maybe that was the headline that you, you wrote about. I think you covered that a good deal here. Ultimately, the, yeah, can you talk about how you help uh, clinicians think through life cycle management in terms of uh, lifetime patient value? I, you might have a different term for that, but I'm sure that played out in the multidisciplinary clinic and it also plays out for chiropractors as well, especially as we were had the prep conversation around athletic greens and uh, we, we spend a lot of money to create a relationship. We see the person for four weeks, four months, whatever it is, their, their disc is now healed or no longer pressing on the nerve. And now we have MRI studies that show that that can actually happen, which is fantastic. So I'm pain-free, I'm back to life again. And now you wish me goodbye. And I go down the street to GNC and buy my athletic greens and my my supplements and everything else. Can you talk about that and how we're really missing the ball there? Yeah, I'll, I'll lead in with 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 a, a little bit of a different slant, and I'll get to exactly your question. And and one of it, you talked about lifetime value of a, of a patient, life cycle value, and it, this is bizarre, especially with the name of my brand, the Evidence Based Chiropractor. This over the last five to ten years is like this militant faction of healthcare providers that take like this unduly, you know 
I don't know, like they are puffing out their chest with a low PVA patient visit average, right? I, I get patients out of my practice in two visits in one visit. Yet we all know that pain is the last thing to come and the first thing to go. We all know that habits take time to change. We all know that most of our patients are going back to the same lifestyle that got them in there in the first place into our practice. Yet there's this pride in bolstering with aggressively quote unquote evidence-based clinicians of you're a total charlatan if you see people long-term and my PVA is the lowest. And I, I just want to say, I ch I'll challenge that all day long and, and I'll challenge it because look at the lifestyle of the people coming into your practice, sitting all day, eating not so great food, stressed out all the time, not exercising enough. And you, you, hopefully we are making dents in that as we influence them, as we inspire them, as we help them get out of pain and get back to the things that they love. But quite often they're going back to the same job. They're going back to the same stresses. They're eating roughly the same foods and it's probably suboptimal. And I'm being very generous with that. Yet many, many clinicians out there are taking this stance. I, I see it over the last five years of like, well, as soon as they feel a little bit better, let's like get them out of the office and, you know, we're not over treating. And it's like, as conservative care providers, we're not like, this isn't the fifth neck fusion that we're doing on them. Like that might be a bad idea. You know, going in to get a movement assessment by your PT, by your DC, going in and fine tuning the exercise program, getting adjusted once a month might not be a bad idea considering most people are super stressed out, eating like crap, not exercising enough and sitting all day. Wild thought, <laughs> but that that's a, a concern of mine. Yeah, especially with the with the brand name that I've created is there there's this distinct, you know, faction and I of clinicians that really take pride in, in what I'll call an, an aggressive mentality against any sort of long-term care and treatment. And it's just foolish to me. Um, now, is there over-treating? Of course there is. And you know, should we be mindful and have a patient-centric approach? Of course we should. But that's where it comes down to as you sit down with the patient, hey, we're going to create a plan based upon two things, your health goals and my findings during the examination. <laughs> you know, That's a simple way to say it. It's a truthful way to say it. And it's a great way to practice in a patient-centric fashion. So that's that's regarding that. Now you brought up a great point about lifetime value of a patient. And this has been an area that myself and my business partner, Jason, have been exploring really, really heavily the last few years. And there's a lot to dive into here, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it the surface view and then we can dive into any of the rabbit holes that, that you would like. We love monthly recurring revenue. So all of our businesses are based upon monthly recurring revenue. Why? Because the fee-for-service model has a one big hole and challenge. Whether you had your best month, or your worst month, the first of the month becomes start over day. And that's a really big challenge. And over the last few years, what we saw was that really get exacerbated with all of the challenges due to the pandemic. We saw offices closed, reduced hours, inability to see patients, and people went from revenues of maybe their best ever to lit literal zero for weeks, days, months, in some cases on end. And to be that vulnerable, is just unwise. So when we look at this, we say, well, I love monthly recurring revenue. I think it's a really great way to diversify your income stream. Number two, it's a great way to make your practice more durable and less vulnerable. We started to look at that and we created a concept that we call the payday practice. And it's how do you create monthly recurring revenue that meets your minimum viable monthly expenses each month? Because if you can have recurring auto-debited revenue that meets your expenses, Practice becomes a hell of a lot more fun and way less stressful because now your care is fee for service. Now that's the goal. It takes time to get there. It doesn't happen overnight, but that's the aspirational goal is that if you could ideally have not changing your business model, it's not giving up patient care by any stretch of the imagination. Now, if you want to have a digital practice, you certainly can, but this is about diversifying income streams, reducing stress and increasing revenue in a patient-centric way. So we identified three primary ways that most clinicians can implement this in a way that we believe makes sense. So if you're just sitting there saying, okay, I get the concept, but I don't even know where to start. Monthly recurring revenue. I don't want to have to sell something. Totally hear you. 
So we looked at this and said, there's three primary ways that clinicians can implement this in their practice. One is a continuation of your in-person services. So a monthly movement assessment, a monthly insert here, whatever that means for you and how you go about your practice, have your patients check in with you once a month. A major, maybe not, there'll be exceptions, but a majority of the time that's warranted. It's not over care. It's not over treating. And it's going to help that patient be better accountability. So we say people, you know, come in because they have a problem and they stay for accountability. So the accountability of checking in each month is critically important. And many of us are, have movement-based facilities. So we have gym equipment. We have things where we can monitor and assess movement in a meaningful way. I don't think there's anything better that we can do for people, yet none of us tend to really check in. So you could continue your inpatient services. In chiropractic space, we typically would call this maintenance or wellness care, but that's an option. Now, if you don't want to do that, that's one option. The second option would be to have an online store, an e-commerce store. We love personally everybody every day supplements. What we know 50 to 70% of people going into conservative care providers take supplements each and every day a multivitamin, vitamin D. These are the everybody, non therapeutic, everybody every day. D, omegas, uh, maybe magnesium, a multi. These are everybody everyday supplements. So we developed a storage system. There's plenty that you can use out there. But the key aspects of this are drop shipped and auto recurring revenue. Many of us have the closet of seminars past where we purchase products and we're trying to sell them and it's awkward and they end up collecting dust and you know, it just doesn't work because it doesn't fit into your business model. However, if you have an online store that drop ship direct to your patient, you don't have to have the inventory. You don't need to worry about the customer service and it's auto shipped better for the patient, better for you. Hold on that for one second. I'm going to hit the third one and then I want to come back real quick. The third one is more new than probably the hardest. And that's online coaching, right? Many providers are getting into online coaching and that can mean a variety of different things, right? It could almost border on telehealth all the way up to concierge lifestyle coaching. And you could create online programs. You could do group coaching. You could do one-on-one -on -one coaching, but there's an avenue there to create monthly recurring revenue by providing value on an ongoing basis. That's leverage. That's not you at the table or at the piece of equipment working one-on-one, -on -one, but that can be leveraged at scale online. So the three opportunities that we've identified for most clinicians, most of the time you get to pick is continuation of ongoing in-person services on a auto-debited basis. That's the typically the easiest to implement, but it still doesn't really break you free of that fee-for-service model. Number two is what we love the most, which are having an online store with product drop shipped on a recurring basis. And then number three is health coaching online and, and that sort of thing. And the key aspect of number two, the epiphany moment for me with, for instance, the supplements online were, you know, and I'll, I'll, you, you could insert traction or supplements with this, like cervical traction units is I'd have patients come in and they'd say, you know, what cervical traction unit should I buy? Or what multivitamin should I, uh, what, what do you take? I'm spending 10 minutes poorly describing something for them to buy on Amazon that then they go home, they purchase off Amazon, they come back the next week with the wrong thing. <laughs> and I'm like, this is insanity. Like number one, I'm taking an, an, an exorbitant amount of time, very poorly describing something. They are purchasing the wrong thing. And, and how is this serving anybody? And th the point of having an online store, an e-commerce store that enables drop shipping is it's a lot easier to say, that's a great question, Chad. Why don't you visit my online store that has my favorite blank, which will be drop shipped to you. And you can actually scan the QR code at our front desk on the way out and hop right onto that store. That saves you a significant amount of time. You know the patient is now getting what you actually would like them to purchase. And guess what? Side effect, you create some revenue off of it. Now, if it's a traction unit, that doesn't really solve the monthly recurring. That's why I personally really like the consumable goods, aka supplements make a lot of sense. Nobody out there, in my opinion, is eating this wondrous diet with how we all live today, including myself. And I think I'm pretty darn good. So being able to offer everybody everyday supplements just makes so much sense, especially when 50 to 70% of the people walking in your front doors are already buying probably crap from somewhere else. Spot on. 
you, you crushed everything there. Could you go, well, you talked about uh, three examples for a monthly recurring revenue stream, and then the fee for service, which would be our normal delivery of chiropractic care, clinical services, mm -hmm. physical therapy, OT speech, et cetera, and receiving money from the insurance company most often for that, or unless it's a cash pay situation. A lot of clinicians confuse, and thanks for bringing me back, confuse a cash pay service like a laser, that that is recurring revenue. And I, I understand the addition of the cash pay service, which is great to uh, supplement payer mix issues and insurance problems and things along those lines. I, I understand that, but it's very different than the first of every month or the 15th of every month getting $10,000 or $30,000 or $100,000 in revenue coming through and hitting the bank account and covering the expenses for the month. Can you talk through that a little bit? Do you see that problem happening or is it something that's just very easy to correct and overcome? Yeah, I think for many clinicians out there, the easiest way for them to first consider adding on additional revenue sources is adding on, as you described, maybe it's a class four laser or some cash-based service. And that's a great step in the right direction. But as you described, it doesn't really solve the core issue. Still time the, for money, right? That's, that's right. That's right. It's You're still trading that time for money. You're still having to be there right in front of the patient. And, and I always like to hedge a little bit on this because that's what we do as caregivers. We love that. that um, this is not a, a, an indictment of that at all. It's actually, wouldn't your practice and your time with your patients be so much more fun and productive if you knew you had your expenses covered the first of every month? And now you're able to really teach and invite. You're able to really have fun. You're able to really go after your ideal patients and not have to compromise either your marketing, your message, how you're communicating, your care plan, but you're able to really do it from a patient-centric point of view because your finances are totally buttoned up. So um, I'm still a huge advocate for hands-on care and delivery. My big thing is, gosh, ensuring that everybody that has that passion and focus can continue to do that as long as they want without the constant overhanging stress of the first of the month. So to your point, adding on a cash-based service is a great way to take a mini step into that world. It's not recurring revenue per se, especially on a laser or something like that, but it's a great way to take a small step and see that there's more out there than third-party payers, right? And, and really being able to uh, dip your toe into an additional service line. But where you really want to get to is the opportunity and availability to leverage your time for that money. And that leverage means it's not a one-for-one -one trade. You're not holding the laser. You're not doing the exercise. You're not delivering the adjustment. But that money, as you described, is coming in, whether you're sleeping, whether you're taking care of a patient, whatever it might be, that there's money flowing in. That's that passive, elusive revenue stream. But I'm going to say for many clinicians out there, it shouldn't be as elusive as it sounds. And we alluded to this a little while ago. We see companies like Hims and Hers and Athletic Greens and Ritual, billion-dollar companies that have propped up over the last two to three years, spending an inordinate amount of money on marketing and advertising to cold traffic and spending a lot of money in the process to get people on recurring billing. Ritual is a great example, Athletic Greens as well, Mudwater the same way. The default is subscribe and save. Amazon, Netflix, you name it, subscribe and save. Why? Because it makes the customer experience and user experience easier and monthly recurring revenue is the gold standard of valuation. It is what drives real business. And us as healthcare providers, here's the secret that shouldn't be a secret we likely have hundreds, if not thousands of people that already know, trust, and like us. And just asking the simple question, hey, do you currently take a multivitamin? Hey, do you insert your question here to your patients over the course of a few week period when you know 50 to 70% of them are probably purchasing health and wellness products from Amazon? Why can't they purchase those products from you? Then you ensure they're getting a professional grade, doctor formulated, whatever it might be that you are passionate about. You can ensure they're getting a higher quality product. Very likely you can be price competitive. And again, guess what? Now you have money coming in 
on a monthly basis, consistent monthly recurring revenue that enables you to decrease your stress. Well, every time that happens for me, I have a hell of a lot more fun day in and day out. And it just frees you up to really be who you are as a provider without feeling that, that overwhelming sense of every time you're with a patient that, there's this, that that's the money that you need in order to continue on the next week or the next month. And when I see companies coming in, creating billion dollar businesses on things that we can easily offer and should be offering our patients, it just, it kills me. And I'll give you an example outside of the direct PT and DC space, um, just to, just to juxtapose this a little bit. Uh, my wife uses a Quip toothbrush. It's a monthly recurring toothbrush head. They send her a toothbrush head that she replaces at 10 bucks a month. And I sit here and I say to myself, how have dentists not sold toothpaste and toothbrushes on a, they give you the mini thing. They give you the little toothbrush and they say, see you in six months or see you next year. And I am like, this is absolute insanity that they're not selling 99% of the toothpaste and toothbrushes out there. These are consumable items that run out that they give free samples of and then say, good luck to you. And I'm going to tell you if this is jaw dropping as people are listening, Everybody listening is doing the same exact thing with their patients with insert product here. You could be offering these things. You're taking care of them. They're super jazzed. They're leaving your practice all hyped. You helped save their life. They love you. They're referring others. And you're like, see you later. <laughs> Good luck to you out there. <laughs> or you're doing what I did, which is poorly describing how they can purchase a product somewhere else, which is the most irrational thing humanly imaginable. But the excuse has historically been the technology and being able to have the technology to make that easy has been difficult in the past. And that is what's changing now where you don't have to be a web developer or technology geek to make this happen in your practice. And that is one of the most fundamental shifts after the mindset shift. Completely agree. Uh, Dr. Jeff, I have a page full of scribbled notes now. I'm not even sure it's legible, but uh, you, you covered a ton of territory. And I, I'm just going to share the, the most profound thing is in the beginning of this conversation, we were talking about in the multidisciplinary orthopedic clinic, how you went out and uh, you, you basically were looking for other businesses, primarily referral sources with similar lookalike lists. It's the same exact mechanism that we're talking about here at the end, which is exact, you know, you brought up uh, Athletic Greens. You know, Athletic Greens pays Tim Ferriss more than a couple dollars to get access to, you know, the millions of podcast downloads he has and, you know, to be on featured on Tim.blog, et cetera, because they just want access to his lookalike list and they've done pretty well in it. And for us to be completely missing that mechanism and that opportunity, ignoring it, I think is a major business mistake um, as well. It's just, but I really appreciate the, how you eloquently put it in a very simplified lay way for all of us clinicians uh, in, in terms of keeping marketing basics in. So thank you for that. Uh, what is the best way for um, our listeners to learn more about you and uh, catch up with you, follow you, um, any shares that you have or anything like that? Um, yep. Probably one of the best places is the blog at thesmartchiropractor.com. So the blog, we have hundreds of articles. They touch on business principles. There's some clinical conversations there. It's a great place to start. We've spent a lot of time, effort, and energy over the last few years trying to build what we consider to be one of the most comprehensive resources out there for marketing and, and clinical aspects related to conservative care. So the blog at the Smart Chiropractor is a great place to start. Uh, additionally, I'm going to say the most popular avenue is the Evidence-Based Chiropractor podcast. So it's a weekly podcast, but it's pretty research-based. So we highlight a paper each and every week. I say it's research and marketing in the time it takes to get to your practice. So each episode is 20 minutes or less. 
Most of them are me evaluating a peer-reviewed piece of research, and there's some marketing dripped in as well. So if you love the clinical aspects and you want to geek out on some of the research related to conservative care, the Evidence-Based Chiropractor podcast is a great way to do it. And I think it's uh, 350 episodes or five years weekly. And I think we missed two weeks. One was due to a hurricane. Uh, and then the other, I literally just forgot, <laughs> so, uh, which is insane. Um, but uh we're very, very consistent with that. But the, the smart chiropractor on the marketing side of things, I'd highly recommend the smart chiropractor blog as a great place to start. And once you visit over to the smart chiropractor, you'll see I'm on every channel you can imagine. So it, you know, whether it be Instagram, whether it be Facebook, whether it be YouTube, whether it be podcasting, you know, emails, et cetera, uh, I'm very, very available. But those are the two places I would start. They're great, uh, great places to connect, uh, get a feel for what, what we're up to, see if it resonates and helps you out day in and day out. Awesome. Dr. Jeff, thank you so much for your time and for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you, Chad. Remember to visit getbreakthrough.com to access our free resource library designed specifically for private practice growth. While you're there, make sure you register for a complimentary growth assessment to learn about potential opportunities for growth in your local market. Again, Thank you for tuning into the Grow Your Practice podcast and supporting our mission to help people in pain get back to normal naturally.